Places, please. Places for top of the show. Places, please. Welcome to Waiting for Places. Hello. Um, that's it. That's the welcome. I'm so excited you're here. Oh, great. I wasn't, I wasn't sure if it was, if I was supposed to wait for more of a welcome or if I should jump in, but great. Hooray. All the welcoming. No, now you know how my first rehearsal speeches go. Anyway. Hi, it's Catherine Nelson this week. Um, hi, how are you? Please tell me your life story. Where did you grow up? How did you choose stage management? What led you to this moment talking on Zoom with me drinking ginger tea? Um, my life story. Okay, I will try to not ramble and go down too many tangents at once. So um, I'll do my best, but stop me if I veer off track. Uh, so I grew up in Salisbury, Maryland, which is a rural area on the peninsula, not far from the ocean. Um, and I am the oldest child and I have three younger sisters. And my mom was a journalist before having me. And then my dad worked at NASA. So we made a lot of rocket scientist jokes, um, but I've always kind of existed in this place between the creative and the analytic from, that I can totally see that I get from the two of them. Um, and I think that's why stage management is such a good fit for me too. Um, but kind of outside of those two paths there, I've pretty much been an artist for my entire life. Even before I learned to read and write, I was making up stories with my dolls. And in elementary school, I was making little books as gifts for people. And it just kind of continued through my whole life. And changed shape, but all centered around this type of being an artist. You know, I painted, drew, played the piano, did origami, calligraphy, sewed, scrapbooked, wrote novels, like all of the creative things that I could possibly get my hands on I was doing for my whole life. Um, but then I also have this very systematic brain that sorts things into categories and identifies patterns and loves a good Excel spreadsheet. So I was always sort of intersecting that with all of my creativity too. And then among all of the different art forms, especially in high school, I started realizing how much I loved Broadway musicals. And later in high school, I attended a musical theater summer intensive where I, for the first time, saw it as something that people could actually do for a career. And I had been planning on uh, pursuing writing and editing and something, you know, that was more of a real job, as my father would say, but I changed my trajectory, went to school for theater, and pretty much from the first class that I took, my professors very quickly pegged me as a stage manager, and it ended up being a really good fit for me, so. But I know that you're also a costume designer, so how did you do, like, how did you find both? How did you realize you could do both? So, that's a good question. And I, I think that costume design was a really natural progression for all of those other types of art that I had always done, you know, like painting and drawing and sewing and even just viewing the way that clothing on people is sort of a sort of a moving sculpture of sorts, like looking at the way that the shapes work together um, in the movement of an actor and theater. So design design at all was just something that worked well with my brain. And I took scenic design classes and lighting design and kind of all of these different areas of design. But then 
because I also knew how to sew. Um, my grandmother taught me to sew when I was really young and I was always just like making dresses for my dolls and things like that when I was young. So kind of out of necessity when people had design questions that also had to do with clothing or with sewing, I started being the person that they went to um, in college or in the apprenticeship that I did. And then I found that it was really satisfying. So I just kept doing it. Mm -hmm. And you said you grew up in Salisbury, Maryland, which I did not realize NASA was in Maryland. So yes and no. Um, there's Maryland uh, has a NASA facility in Greenbelt, which is up by closer in the like Baltimore, Washington area. Um, but then where my dad actually works is in Virginia. So the area that I grew up in Maryland is right near the intersection of Delaware and Maryland and Virginia. It's actually called the Delmarva Peninsula for Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, Delmarva. Um, so he would you know, drive 45 minutes to work every day and work in a different state. And uh, then every so often go to the slightly farther away facility in the state where we actually lived and work there too. Um, and he would go out of town a couple of times for different different projects too. Like he, we lived in Florida for a couple of years when I was really young because he was working on a project with the Hubble, which was really cool. Uh, he went to Australia for a year once. So, so yeah, he's kind of been been all over with NASA. Yeah, but then you now live in Michigan, right? Like you're outside of Detroit. Correct. Yeah, I live about half an hour outside of Detroit right now. And after college, I wasn't totally set on exactly what my ideal career path might look like. So I knew that I was doing a lot of stage management in college, but I was also doing design and I was actually really interested in lighting design. Um, so I was kind of doing all of these different things and I didn't want to give any of them up yet, but I knew that I wanted to work and get professional experience. So I applied for a number of apprenticeship programs. And the one that I was most excited about was here in Michigan at the Purple Rose Theater Company because they do a lot of new plays and new play development. And so I think I mentioned earlier that I used to write a lot of novels and whatnot and that I, that I have always loved writing and books. And so new plays have always been my favorite. So when I was accepted for that program at the Purple Rose, I moved to Michigan and then after... I ended up being in the apprenticeship program for 15 months, I think. Uh, and when I completed that program, I was hired back as a costume designer, then got a job elsewhere as a stage manager and just kept working. Um, and now in, in non-COVID times, I've been the resident production stage manager at Detroit Public Theater for a few years. So I work, work quite a bit with them. And that's been a major thing that has kept me in Michigan. I hate the winter, I'm always cold, I hate driving in the snow, but I love the work at Detroit Public and that's something that has really kept me here and let me put roots down. What is special about the work at Detroit Public? Cause it, you, I was going to ask you what drew you to Michigan, what kept you here? And it's like, it sounds like it's just the work. It's not Michigan itself. <laughs> um. I will add the caveat that I have found that this area where I am in the Detroit area has a lot of things that I love 
except for the cold. Like um, something that is really huge for me is this area has a ton of people of different ethnicities and different cultures. And there's so much diversity here. And, you know, I go to the grocery store and hear three different languages being spoken. And that is such an, ex like, it's such a beautiful environment to me because that's, I think the way that, the thing that I love about where we are here and the, I love seeing the diversity within human beings. And so then, I, and even, it's even exciting then also for little things like, like I can pick which Indian grocery store I want to, to get the spices that I need and things like that. So just the beautiful type of humanity that I see represented here is not necessarily something that I've seen in every other place that I've been to. So that's definitely something that has been a reason that I wouldn't want to leave or wouldn't want to go to somewhere that didn't have those things. But Detroit Public Theater, I do really care about my work with them. Um, and I think, so similarly to what I had mentioned about loving new plays, well, we've only, we've done a couple of world premieres there, but in general, they also do just a lot of contemporary plays in general and shows that really reflect reflect that same diversity within humanity that I was talking about uh, as something I liked about being in Michigan. And so I think, you know, working on shows that I feel like really show people as they are and really let us see different things about humanity and the way that the see ourselves, see, let people see themselves accurately represented on stage is the type of art that I want to be, be creating. So I think being part of a group of people that are committed to that is is really exciting and something that's mattered to me in making my work not just feel like work mm -hmm. and forgive me i'm going to focus a little bit on this dichotomy in you where you design and stage manage because i feel like so often we're pigeonholed and certainly as a young stage manager i thought i could only stage manage and never would could be seen as anything else is what draws you you said you really like new plays and contemporary plays is that appealing to you as a designer as well? Or or do you secretly harbor the desire to only work on Regency period pieces? I pretty much uh, non-secretly have the desire to almost never work on Regency period pieces. <laughs> so um, I really like costume designing contemporary set shows that are set contemporarily, whether those are world premieres or not. Um, but though I do love world premieres in all areas, but really contemporary costume design feels like this whole secret world to me that not a lot of people think about when they think of costume design. It's easy to picture these big glamorous ball gowns or really incredible magical looking costumes um, like we might see in, you know, anything from a traditional Shakespeare play to the Frozen musical with the magical quick change, but looking at the, but contemporary clothing communicates just as much, if not more about a character, because I mean, even thinking about when I get up and choose what I want to wear in the morning, there's so much that goes into it in my brain. And so tapping into that for, for each character 
in a way that doesn't make the audience think that I tried to put the right thing together, but just accepts it as something that belongs in that character's closet is like this secret way of communicating information about a play that is a really satisfying to me to put together. And do you consider yourself more designer or stage manager? Or do you kind of manage to balance them equally? I get that question a lot. Um, and for a while, I didn't have a good answer for it. But, and part of that is because I had realized that doing both design and stage management has allowed me to use different parts of my brain and apply my creativity in different ways. Design is obviously very creative, but stage management is as well. And they're just, but they're different in the ways that they are. And so I think that has always been a big part of why I continue doing both. Um, and the more, that, the more that I've kind of done both, the more I've been able to identify that I do consider myself more of a stage manager than a designer. And I think part of the reason for that is actually has to do with the logistics of, of working. Design work is a lot more self-directed. There's obviously still a lot of collaboration, but I will spend a lot more time while designing, tackling a to-do list entirely by myself, like spending two days rendering all from home and I don't see anyone else and it's up to meet us at the deadlines uh, beyond the fact that, oh, renderings are due by this meeting. Um, and so it's very self-directed in that way. You know, whereas stage management, there's an external schedule. I'm leaving the house to go to work every day and interacting with human beings every time I'm there. And so that structure has been something that I've gravitated more towards as time goes on. Mm -hmm. So at this point, I do describe myself as a stage manager first, but independent, independently of that, I also firmly identify as an artist and each absolutely informs the other. That was going to be my follow-up is, do you think you're a better stage manager because you're a designer? And are you a better designer because you're a stage manager? Yes, 100%. I think so. Hun. And I mean, I think that tends to be true with anyone who's been able to do multiple multiple things in theater because just having the ability to look at something from another professional's perspective will inform your collaboration with them as well as just collaboration with other team members like the way that I've worked with a lighting designer as a costume designer and having an understanding into that collaboration then lets me as the stage manager understand more of what the lighting designer and the costume designer might need from each other. So it, it definitely makes me better at both. And do you keep your two careers siloed? Like at this company, you only stage manage and at this company, you only design? Or is the, is the Detroit theater community pretty much like, oh, Catherine does both. We're just going to accept that. And whatever she's hired on that day is what she's doing. I'd say I fall somewhere in the middle of those. A lot of people knew, know that I do both. And I have, for most, for many places that I've worked, I've been hired to do, to do different things at different times. There are a lot more places that I design than I stage manage, which is partially, I think, just about time and the work that I've pursued. Um, but there are also some companies that have relied on me for both and that 
and some shows where I've done both at the same time, which is a really, a really hard thing to sit with and to figure out because one workload and two, it requires me to be really, really intentional about what brain space I'm in at what time, because like as a, you know, as a stage manager, it's not my job to fix a costume problem for someone, um, you know, as far as a, a problem that's not an emergency, like a design issue, but, but as a costume designer, it absolutely is. And so it's something that I've had to be really intentional about so that it doesn't seem like I'm, so that I'm not setting myself up to, for failure, I think in, in a way. I mentioned the Detroit theater scene. It feels like it's kind of small and scrappy and you can tell me I'm wrong, but do you feel like you need to do both in order to have a career in theater while living in the Detroit metropolitan area? I know that has been helpful for me. I know a lot of people who do theater in the Detroit area who don't, who don't work in multiple areas. They have the one thing that they do and they're good at it and that's great. Um, but I do also know that theater doesn't pay a whole lot here um, as, as is the case I think in almost everywhere in the country. And so the fact that I need to work multiple jobs in order to support myself, when I decided to commit to stage management it, there came a point at which time I had to, it, to really advance as a stage manager, I had to stop the non-theatrical job that I was working during the day, which was, I was doing bridal alterations, uh, and the schedule, I had some flexibility over, but I left that to stage manage full-time, but obviously full-time stage management is still not full-time per se when you're when you're going from project to project and I have found that also designing has allowed me to supplement my stage management income in a way that I can put the schedules together with some degree of control like I might be calling into a production meeting for one show on my lunch break from another and I mean I describe being able to do that but it's more of a that's the way that I've figured out to make it work financially. And it's, but it's a lot. And I'm working on being more mindful of work-life balance, especially while I'm in this period of being paused from everything. And I'm really thinking about what was and was not healthy. I think about the different ways in which I worked and I've really been analyzing the ways in which overworking is glorified in the society, both it's, it's necessary for many people with just the state of the, the world as it is and capitalism, but it's also glorified in this way in which we're always supposed to be doing something and accomplishing something and achieving six things at once. And that's actually really harmful. So these are things that I'm, you know, thinking about and working through as well as I think about what, what this career might look like as I come back, as we come back post COVID. Yeah. And you are in a position to actually have some influence on that since you serve on the elected council, which is the governing body for Actors' Equity Association, the union for stage managers and actors. And I know you take that responsibility very seriously. Um, what is thrilling to you about being on council and being in this elected position? Because I know it brings you what appears to be joy. I don't want to put emotions on you. 
It definitely brings me joy and it's definitely thrilling too. So yes, these are all good words for it. Your, your observations are uh, on point. Um, and I know you mentioned that it's part of the national governing body. It's basically being part of the union's board of directors, if that's helpful for anyone. And council seats are apportioned by region and job category. So I'm the central stage manager counselor. Um, and this is something I've been, a position I've been in since I think August, 2019. And I ran in the first place because I was frustrated by a lot, but also saw a lot of potential, especially being someone who's outside of the main office cities and whose career is in small regional theater as opposed to, to large theater. And I wanted to be a part of improving things in the ways that I was excited about potentially doing. So what I was talking about just a minute ago with always working multiple jobs, I've spent so much time exhausted and burned out. And it's made me care very, very deeply about workers' rights and how we take care of workers. I think, I think in theater, it's easy for us to fall into this pattern of, oh, we're, we're artists and we're creators and we're making these magical productions. And all of that is true, but in doing so, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that we're also workers and theater is a job. And right now the fact is that I and many people have to work multiple jobs to pay our rent and our bills. And that's unfortunately common. And it also ties into huge issues in this country like income inequality. And so something that's exciting to me about being on Equity Council is uniting stage managers and actors, not only as artists, but as workers and figuring out how we can improve all of our lives as workers and tapping into the solidarity that makes us strong. And all of those are very macro examples, but I think I would be remiss if I did not mention loving all of the details. So I am the type of nerd who will sit there and cross-reference contracts all day and that minute detail-oriented work satisfies my brain on so many levels. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that my mind is really good at creating systems and this work with numbers and words and details is just a very happy place for me. So we get all of that plus advocating for workers and for safe and fair workplaces. The combination of that is pretty exciting. And I mean, all of that is very compelling. I also want to point out that being on council is a volunteer position that takes hours of work a week, even if you're not sitting there cross-referencing contracts for fun. <laughs> it's true. Um, it's definitely one of those things that I have to be mindful of of time because I could very easily put all of my time into it and it is as you say a volunteer position but obviously right now there's so much happening in the industry and we all desperately want to get everyone back to work and we want to figure out how to make theater safe safely and so there's so much to work through and then there's also the very real issues that so many of our workplaces are not safe from discrimination and harassment. And there are all so many real tangible things that we have to work through to make our workplaces safe on every level for, for people. And so um, it's a lot, of, a lot of time for folks right now because there are so many big things that need working through. Mm -hmm. And 
you've mentioned discrimination. The We See White American Theater Man's definitely laid out some things that needed change, that they d- demanded change. What I like is that you identified all of us as workers. And I think the demands also identified us as arts workers saying this is a workplace. What are the employers going to do? These are the changes we want in our workplaces to make us feel safer and able um, to do the art that we all want to do, which is why we went into this business. How are you planning to incorporate those demands as a stage manager, as an equity counselor, as a costume designer? Like where do you see in your life the ability to enact change? Yeah, so the We See White American Theater demands are such an incredible resource because they're basically a roadmap for here are all of these things that you need to incorporate and do to make your workplaces safer and more equitable. And thinking about kind of the intersection of all of those three different things in theater that I do, the stage management and design and then uh, advocacy on equity council, humane scheduling is definitely a tangible action item here uh, as far as eliminating harmful practices like rehearsals that have a 10 hour working period within a 12 hour span of day or working six days a week as a matter of practice in combination often with those 12 hour days. Um, And in stage managing at Detroit Public, I've actually uh, advocated for and utilized five day rehearsal weeks and tech processes without 10 out of 12s already for a couple of years now, but which, which is great, but often I've realized that I've framed it as a practical choice for directors or producers. You know, I've talked about productivity in a way of maximizing time and because we never accomplished anything in the last two hours of a 10 out of 12 anyway. So I've framed it in this mindset of how it serves the producer or the director. And so something that I've realized I can do better, especially in reading the We See White American Theater demands is actually not only speaking up about the wanting to eliminate these practices, but speaking up about why these practices are so harmful and how exactly they're steeped in white supremacist culture. So that as we create new schedules that we're actually addressing the root of the harm, we're creating structures that actually allow time for creating work, for letting people be human, prioritizing our caregivers, for supporting people of all marginalized identities, And being intentional about this is definitely a way that I'm seeking to incorporate the demands from every level, whether that's looking at our contracts and equity policy or my work as a stage manager and shows that I have some some amount of input into the schedule. And something else that I realized is while I've advocated for these things at Detroit Public already, I haven't spoken up as passionately about them in the same way for shows at other theaters where I was designing or where I was freelancing. And that's something I want to change moving forward too, because it's important for me to not just to speak up about these things in spaces where I'm comfortable, but also where I'm not as not as comfortable. And kind of related to this, there are parts in the demands as well about just actually allowing time to work and create art that don't tie directly to those two things, but not rushing through everything in the way that we have commodified the creative process, which just ends up um, using people for art. And 
you know, I think I really have the responsibility now to interrupt that process of rushing, both when I see it happening in my own work and when I see it happening in collaboration, because it happens all the time. And that's true, whether it's explicit, like seeing BIPOC collaborators work being rushed through or them not being given equitable time and platform to share or whether it's implicit, like the tendency to use shortcuts and apply the same structure to every project. And I think especially as a stage manager, as someone who is often watching the way that other people are working and the way that they have time to share or not to share and who's able to participate and who isn't speaking up in a room, which I think is always important to look at and to analyze, you know, interrupting those explicit and implicit behaviors are things that I can do beginning beginning now too. I mean, it's not just in the rehearsal room, but it certainly applies there. And something else that stands out to me, especially as a costume designer, is I am so used to being told that there is no money for hair and makeup professionals, which often results in this whole design area being overlooked and producers expecting actors to do their own hair, provide their own wigs, et cetera, without extra compensation. And this especially weighs heavily on BIPOC performers. Or if they have arranged hair and makeup assistance, then the person that the producer has brought in isn't fluent in working with different hair types and skin tones. And hair and makeup design is so closely connected to costumes. So all of these items and the demands about providing necessary hair and makeup support and products, qualified and knowledgeable stylists, compensation, et cetera, are ones that I can make sure that I speak up loudly about on shows that I design, especially since it connects so closely to the design areas that, that I'm working on too. So that's something else that has been, been really meaningful for me to really identify ways that in which I can do better speaking up. And that connects with equity as well, because that's something that we need to make sure is a contractual protection for, for performers. They need to know that when, when they're hired, that they're going to be taken care of and they're not going to be expected to do extra labor for free. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I know that in certainly in smaller not-for-profit theater, everyone wants to give as much as they possibly can to make the show a success because there just aren't usually as many resources, but it's balancing wanting the show to be a success with how much people can actually have to give. 100%, especially, you know, I'm so, like, I'm, I'm used to working on a small budget, especially in shows that I'm costume designing, et cetera, and so I think we're going to all have to get really creative in how we can work together to make sure that folks have the support they need. But we're creative. We're creative people by, by nature. So I'm excited to see the ways in which we can all collaborate to make, to make sure that we are taking care of, of everyone. Mm -hmm. And how have you been collaborating during the Great Pause? I see lovely houseplants in the back. So I'm just impressed that you have kept plants alive for the last year. I keep killing mine. Um, <laughs> but what have you been doing in the last year to, to scratch that itch of collaboration, of design, of creativity, of, I mean, are you just creating, I see you as the type that just creates Excel spreadsheets for the fun of it. I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> um, again, uh, yes, I 
have definitely created Excel spreadsheets for fun. So there's that. Um, that's an interesting question about how I've collaborated during the great pause, because I mean, this is the most time that I have spent alone in oh, forever. I mean, just being, being home so much. Uh, equity council work has definitely helped me feed that collaborative part of my spirit because all of that is work that I'm doing with other people and it's all multifaceted and everyone, it's something where I'm really able to draw from the wealth of knowledge that other folks have too, because all of us, you know, have different areas in, that we can speak about and that we're excited about. So all of that is definitely collaborative, but I've also been spending a lot of time, um, a lot of time being quiet or a lot of time thinking and working through things independently too during the, during the pandemic, which is also good because I think it's always been really easy for me to rush from thing to thing to thing and to not spend any time really in my own brain or like thinking about the way that my brain works or exploring and coming to terms with who I am and questions of identity and things like that. And so while there's been a lot of collaboration and I've been so grateful for that because it has kept me sane while I'm here by myself. It's also been really interesting to look at the ways in which I've had this time to kind of sit with myself too and just work through some things. And that's been really valuable as well, as much as it's also overwhelming and time consuming as and hard. Uh, so it's kind of, it's a large variety of things, I think, between between those things that I do that are very active and then things that I do where I'm just really thinking and working through a lot and learning the way that my mind works. It's just been really helpful and definitely informs the collaboration too, because then it lets me show up better in those spaces because I'm understanding myself better. Um, and then I've also spent a lot of time reading over the pandemic, which makes such a difference for my mental health. And in general, when I've been really busy working, I haven't been able to read very much. And it's always just left me feeling like something is missing and I can't like, kind of like a feeling like I can't get my feet on the ground. And intentionally doing it now has been really helpful. Um, just as that time of time of taking a break from that being in my own brain that I was talking about. But it's also been a way of collaborating with other folks too, because even through little things like I'm part of a book club of other stage managers and we read a book every month and then we discuss it on Facebook. And that's such a joyous thing, just reading a book and talking about it with people that has been really satisfying and exciting for me. Do you like reading fiction or nonfiction? I generally like reading fiction, but I also like reading nonfiction if it's a topic that I'm interested about. And I love memoirs, which are sort of this bridge between, between fiction and nonfiction. And if you look, if you look at my bookshelf, everything is divided up into these really specific categories like memoirs on mental illness goes into books on gender and sexuality and all of these that are 
this kind of merging of fiction and nonfiction and has been really exciting for me to, to look at the bridge between those two topics too. Mm-hmm. And how do you deal with the frustrations of, I'm speak, I'm thinking specifically about equity council, which I'm on, I've been on committees. I'm not on council, but I've been on committees and, uh, democracy, democracy is a great thing. I love that it exists and that the common person gets to have a voice. It is also frustratingly slow. It is frustrating how slowly is the word. Um, change happens, the processes that things have to go through to make sure that it's done properly. Um, how do you deal with those frustrations? I feel like, especially as a stage manager, where I'm like, okay, here's how we're going to efficiently do this. This is the best option. I've already thought about seven of the details. This is how we do it. And then you have to collaborate and go through the process. And maybe you, as a designer, you've you take joy in that because it leads to better collaboration. I mean, these are really good questions. And these are certainly things that I've thought about that are frustrating too, because the you really tap into many things that I've thought about with being so satisfied by democracy and letting people speak up, but then also getting excited and wanting all the good ideas to happen right away because we can just make things better for people. And something that's really important for me to remember is that doing things well or changing them in a way that is really intentional takes a lot of time. There's a saying in, in the design world that you can have, you know, between good, fast, and cheap, you can have two out of the three. And so if you want things, and especially now in this time when money is an issue for everyone, you know, so cheap then has to kind of be one of our, one of our options, which leaves us picking between good and fast. And as much as I wish that all three of them were feasible, uh, the sad reality has its all, it, the sad reality is it's kind of a balancing game more than I would like it to be between wanting to do things quickly because we know that there are issues to make people's lives and work better, but then also acknowledging that doing things well takes time and we need to, and we will do better work if we give everyone permission to take that time. And, you know, that really ties into what I was talking about earlier, too, with thinking about just the way that we work and the way that it's so easy to rush through things and try to get everything done right away. And that moment of letting ourselves take a breath and pause and think about what we're doing or be mindful is actually, it just makes our work better. So it's definitely a balancing act between all of those things, but work in my experience, work that is rushed through really quickly, then often has to be redone because it wasn't done properly or effectively. So um, it's wanting to, to split the difference, to work as quickly as possible, but also not set ourselves up for failure and repeating the process again in two days. Yes, true. Nothing annoys me more than having to do something a second time. Um, absolutely. So you have admitted that you are a nerd about Excel spreadsheets and that you are a nerd about contracts. 
what are, what else are you a nerd about? And you said you like reading memoirs. Like, what other facets of Katherine Nelson are there? So something that I think you could probably intuit from some things that I've said, but that I haven't been super blunt about yet, is that I am a total nerd about research. Um, this started when I was young, and I was not even shy about it. Like growing up, I would have themed birthday parties all of the time. And I, well, not all of the time, you know, once a year for my birthday, um, but I love my birthday. So if it had been all of the time, that would have been great. That sounds like a good time to me. Uh, but once a year, you know, for a few years, I had themed birthday parties. And these were sort of just opportunities for me to do a whole bunch of research and then let everyone into my excitement. I didn't pick themes like sleepover or birthday. My themes were things like Les Miserables and the French Revolution and Lord of the Rings and the Middle Ages. So like for that last one, for the medieval party, we made almond milk before it was so widely available because it was an ingredient in this thousand year old recipe for this almond rice porridge that I found um, that we made for guests to eat. And I did research uh, into my, you know, long distant generations back family's coat of arms and painted and sewed it on a banner that we hung up. So all of the research or like the Lord of the Rings party, I made up a recipe for Lumbus, which is the food, the bread that they take with them and translated and wrote an Elvish on the birthday cake. So like these birthday parties were just always this avenue for me to share my research with everyone in a really exciting way, uh, especially if it was something that I'd already been researching that year. Just How old were you? For these because I'm imagining six-year-old Catherine like literally sewing a pennant and her parents being like this is what she wanted we were gonna go with Sesame Street <laughs> um, I was a little I was a little older than that I was like early teenage years so 13 14 15 um I'm trying to remember what the earliest themed parties I had was though because I was looking back through through some photo albums recently and through memories of my parents and it's interesting seeing the little things in me when I was really young that then are totally the same as that you know 13 year old having the middle ages birthday party so I'm sure that there were other similar things your vision of you know six-year-old Catherine researching a coat of arms is is not that far off um wait I have so many follow-up questions what did your sisters think about this because you had three so, younger <laughs> sisters right so you got yeah. to be like <laughs> yeah so my uh, my birthday is in September and the sister right below me who's two years younger than I am her birthday was in October. So, you know, we finished my birthday and then we moved on to her birthday. And, or that's sort of how it felt when we were young and those were the things we looked forward to. I still look forward to birthdays. We've established this, but um, 
So every year I plan this elaborate birthday party. We have, you know, crafts when I was young, especially and doing slumber parties and we're planning it all out. And here is the schedule of activities and there's always a theme. And then a month later, we start thinking about Amanda's birthday party. And I would say, oh, well, what's your theme going to be? How are we going to plan it? Let's plan. And Amanda would say to me, the theme is fun, fun, birthday. Like that is the theme. We don't need any more birthdays. It is a birthday. <laughs> so it was not, um, I was always a little bit different, I think, than my family, which which is okay. I've come to terms with that. But uh, but yeah, my sisters were less were less keen on it than I was. <laughs> but as the oldest, you could force them. It's true, and I totally forced them to do a lot of things. Like I would write plays based on books we were reading for school, and give them all roles and, you know, make them perform them in the living room with me or reenact Sound of Music on the staircase with the so long farewell scene and they're all leaving and we're doing it on the stairs and I'm directing and in the thing and writing all the dialogue and just sort of telling them what to do. So they had to go along with some of it for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. Um Next follow-up question, how old were you when you read Les Mis by Victor Hugo? I, oh, 14 maybe, and I remember it because, and I knew the musical already, and I loved the musicals, I still love musicals, but reading Les Mis in its entirety stands out to me as a memory because my family would go on vacation every year to the beach with my dad's side of the family and everyone would chip in and rent a house together and each family would take a night cooking and we would just all spend time together and hang out on the beach and I am someone who has just always been reading every chance they get so you know every time we went anywhere I'm taking my book in the car and reading with me or so we have five minutes before we have to leave. Great. This is time to read three pages. So I would always take this whole backpack of books with me on vacation to, to read because a week at the beach was just a chance to read and do nothing else for, for seven days. And so it was one such year that I took Les Mis with me to read it on vacation. And my family was all laughing at me because I'm carting around this, you know, 1200 page book back and forth from the beach every day. But I read the whole thing that week and other books besides. So it was really exciting to me, even if my family gave me a hard time about it. And I bet you didn't cheat. Like I, cause I also read Les Mis when I was like 14, 15. I skipped the Waterloo section. I was like, sir, this is redonkulous. I am moving on. Uh, I, uh, I, I definitely feel like there were probably sections like that that I skimmed just, and I read, remember having to read Moby Dick for school. And that was one that really stood out to me because I was like, why are we taking 40 minutes to talk about whale blubber? I lost track of the story. Let me just skip through, like skim through all of this exposition that isn't really relevant. Um, but then 
adding to that, there was also always this sense of betraying the author if I didn't actually read what they wrote. And authors have always been, have been something else that I've been a nerd about too for my whole life. And so, so I think there was always a bit of a balancing act between reading quickly through things that weren't as integral to the plot of what I was reading, but also making sure that I didn't, that I didn't betray that person who had spent so much time lovingly crafting this work of art that, that I was holding in my hands. I love that you've always had a soft spot for the creators in your even, you know, young formative Catherine. Yeah. What brings you joy other than reading Moby Dick? Well, yeah, so so reading books that are that are not Moby Dick do uh, definitely bring me the most joy, I think. Um, and even thinking about that, I know you gave that example, but sometimes when I finish a book and I'm not ready to leave the characters behind, I just start it again right away because because I'm not done with it. I'm there and it's bringing me joy. And something you called out, earlier, but that we haven't talked about in detail yet is houseplants. So there are a few, so this is a podcast, so everyone can't, can't see behind me, but there are a few of them on the bookshelf behind me and I'm in the basement. So it means that I have a grow light here because I like having plants near me, but they like sun. Um, and I've, I have quite a few, but I've gotten more during the pandemic. And now there's a bit of a joke between my spouse and myself about, well, at some point we're going to run out of horizontal surfaces to put the plants on. So I need to, to rein it in a little bit, but they do just bring me, bring me a lot of joy and they look interesting and they require some degree of care, but also not something I have to do 24 seven that can still bring me joy when I see them. My favorite plant right now is what's called a ZZ plant. It is a type of a small tree, actually. It is not behind me, it's too large. And ZZ stands for Zamia colchis zamiafolia, which is basically a tree that has kind of bulbous roots and goes up. Um, and I picked it out because it looked interesting. And it turns out it's been easy to take care of. It doesn't require a lot of light and it has grown several new shoots during the pandemic. So seeing it change and seeing something new has just been a satisfying change in my environment that has made me smile. Uh, and then I still love musicals. I touched on them a little bit, but like singing along to a good musical theater soundtrack brings me a lot of joy. I you know, can't promise that I'm very good at it, but I love just the story within musicals, I think, and hearing that in songs, but there's also something, something that has a lot of momentum about a song that also tells a story, and especially the contemporary musicals, I know, shocker, um, are ones that are really satisfying to me and bring me a lot of joy. All right, I'm gonna make you talk about cooking because I know that you love your spices. I know you love your food. I do. Um, yes, I love to cook, which is funny because many of the things that we have talked about, I've been, I've been like, oh, 
I love this now. And I also loved it when I was five and 10. And you can see this whole path through my life. And it's, and I'm basically the same person now. But cooking is one of those things that was not like that. I hated cooking when I was growing up. Um, and I think, I mean, I think part of that is that it was established this really gendered thing growing up. It was like, well, you know, it's my mom's job to cook. And that kind of notion of patriarchal gender was not, is not something that I have, am really interested in. Uh, so I pushed against it. But then at a certain point, you know, I moved out, I'm living by my, I was living by myself and discovered that if I really wanted to eat, I had to cook. And, you know, that feels logical, a good, uh, good life choice to make time to eat regularly. So I started cooking and then I discovered that it was actually something really creative for me. And I also, so I love food that has a lot of spices and then it's really flavorful. Um, I love Indian food and Thai food and anything that anything that uses a lot of spices and a lot of different flavors, not just in a like blatantly spicy way, but in a here's the depth of all of these different flavors that are present within this thing that you're eating. Um, and that's just really something that I, that I enjoy. And so the more that I started experimenting with it, the more fun it was to, to kind of create all of those things and to play with the levels of spices and different recipes. And now at this point, I, I have a lot of cookbook cookbooks because I like to get inspiration, but I don't cook from recipes very closely. Even when I follow a recipe, I'm more like looking at the ingredients and the type of flavors. And then I just kind of run from there. I've I cook kind of like a jazz musician is the way that I use spices. Like I, and I, I don't measure them. I go by my feeling for what feels right. And it's something that is really satisfying for me in a creative way, but then it's also satisfying in the sense in which I need to eat food to stay alive. So I might as well do that too. So yes, all the cooking. And then I also, I get, I should also mention that I follow a plant-based diet, uh, which is basically vegan. So I cook a lot of vegetables and I put a lot of spices on them. And I like exploring new ways of using things that we have thought about and always kind of always treated in the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. Um, I'm going to end it there, but thank you, Catherine. Of course. This was so much fun. Thank you. This was the second episode of Waiting for Places, a podcast highlighting stage managers living and working in the central region of the United States. Thank you for listening. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to it. It will help other stage managers find it. Also, make sure to click subscribe so you can get new episodes when they drop. This podcast was presented by Ethical Rioting Productions. I am your host, Katrina Herman. This week on Waiting for Places, you heard from Katherine Nelson. The stage manager calling places was Fredo Aguilar.
This episode was edited by Katrina Herman with graphic design by Nicholas B. Paluha. A huge thank you to Morgan Zupanski, Chris Laporte, and the rest of the Waiting for Places think tank, Fredo Aguilar, Caitlin Boddy, Mary Hungerford, and Jacqueline Saldana. Stand by for the next episode. Thank you, Final Places Call. All right, folks, let's get this ball rolling.